Hello and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In today's episode, called Lost in Paradise, we bring you three short stories set on the north coast of New South Wales. Before I play you the first story, just a warning that some of today's episode does contain strong language and confronting themes. In our first piece, Saturday Night on Johnson Street by Paul Q, people watching becomes so engaging it barely stops between breaths, immersing us in the hectic nightlife of Byron Bay. You want a fresh rhyme? He asks with a smile. Byron Bay, land of the free, but not for the likes of you and me. Saturday night on Johnson Street, and I leave the rhyme behind, drift into the rails, daytime people with their nighttime faces, Alan the newspaper man whispering into Sally the surgeon's ear. This is why they came to Byron. The dreadlocks and tattoos, all the kiddies escaped from the city, backpackers with B.O. in yesterday's underwear. You won't see Alan and Sally shaking a leg at Coco's or Cheeky Monkeys. They are locals now. I don't know them, and they don't know me. I drift back out, two girls who don't look old enough, but are probably already too old, come past in their lollipop outfits and Tinkerbell lipstick, little narrow hips trying to wiggle and budding breasts trying to bulge. I wonder for a moment if they're already rootin', and if they are, it doesn't seem right. The boys cruise past in their Commodore all eyes and alcohol. The pea plates a dead giveaway, a dire warning, a malignant portent. Hey, baby! The girls look up, everybody laughs, the car drives away. A chamber of souls, easy fodder for the angels tonight. Into the northern, a table of first-timers bouncing out of their seats as the front bar awakes. Their first schooners raised by their first tattoos, looking for girls, looking for action, looking for that story to take back home. They are three hours too early and by then it will be too late. There will always be a bigger tattoo. Back on the street, the big boy with his guitar is belting out some tunes. Another face you never see by day. Another mask from the Saturday night wall. Maybe thinking about his day job in Ballina, pushing the trolley, scanning your meat, sitting by the river, eating the prawn. I cross the road to the next corner, where Johnson Street meets Lawson Street, the centre of town, the centre of the universe. It is here the brothers have staked their claim. They raise their bottles, smiling to me as I walk past all except the woman with her head between her knees. She is 30 going on 100, and tonight is just the end of another day. Was it her I saw sleeping in the bus shelter this morning as I stalked the streets between downpours, looking for the escape this town has never delivered, except in the rare moment of generosity from the meat manager at Woolies, who I followed as she slapped stickers on chickens and trays of meat and wrote numbers that meant something more to the likes of me. Up at the beachy, I have stepped into Aussie heaven. It is like stepping into the cast of Home and Away. Everywhere there is skin and schooners, eyes and cigarettes. The band keeps the beat and melody simple. And everyone is dancing and no one is listening. And everybody is watching the surfing videos like they have never seen them before. I go into the back room where the boys are ugly, but things more real. Slip a fiver into Helen of Troy. Don't do it, mate. Tattoos of things I've never seen crawl up and down his legs. A grim reaper rising up to his shoulder from some hideous scene below. He takes a swig from a can of Jim Beam and sticks a fag into a toothless grin. I bet ten cents. He bets a dollar twenty-five. I wonder where his money is coming from, but not where it is going to. 
My five are disappearing quickly as Helen and I look blankly at each other, each of us awaiting the other's next move. Out in the street, I am no richer or wiser. There are people everywhere, something hanging in the air that no one can grab, like the carnival has just finished and no one wants to go home. The world is on fire and we are all at loose ends, alone in the night. I decide to head home before one of us explodes. Back down Johnson Street, past the divvy vans, a first-timer's head pinned to the footpath beneath the bouncer's forearm, a girl screaming in his face, a guy with long hair and a bloody nose slumped against the wall. I make it to the bus stop by the little white church. Jesus is not a dirty word. White chairs spread out over the lawn, free pancakes, smiling faces. What would they say if I asked them for a beer? Friend. You don't need that here, friend. I need it everywhere. I climb on the bus, see the driver's friendly face. Everyone needs a friend. I just have this face. 2.40, he says. I have the right change. Once again. That was Mark Desay reading Saturday Night on Johnson Street by Paul Q and recorded live at Knox Street Bar in Chippendale. Mark is the recipient of an ongoing scholarship to the Stella Adler Academy of Acting in Los Angeles. Among his Australian performance credits are Next Fall for the Seymour Centre and Bugalug's Bum Thief for Monkey Bar Theatre. He is currently based in New York. Next we have a piece by Byron Bay writer and academic Moya Costello. Northern Rivers, A Gothic Tale is read by myself. To come to Northern Rivers is to find, or lose, yourself among vines, beneath trees, under rain shatter, in flood-marked houses on stilts within storms of deep, low thunder, high ice-green clouds and lightning startle. Rivers flow and twist across the land like the snakes of the region do, appearing, disappearing, but remaining a felt presence. Bright green and midnight blue, red-bellied, copper and diamond-skinned, as if the land is theirs. And it is. To come to Northern Rivers is to come to rainbow colour, a bright neon-lime green, a satiated black, regular grey-white mornings and evening mist, and the soft baby-blue blanket of sky. The sky could have merged with the land, forgetting the horizon, but for the dark ranges. Homelessness, a vertiginous sensation, suspension over a fathomless space. You can disappear in the rainforest, in this place of extremes, the precipitous hills in impossible lushness, of khaki lizards, tarnished silver skinks, flat-padded geckos, large black and fast-jumping orange spiders, laughing kookaburras, curious wallabies, wary koalas, intrepid echidnas, and butcher birds with sharp phrasings that could be warnings, anger, or half-songs, a tilting in the ether of bell notes, incomplete and resonant. Here, in this overwrought place, you might fall, you might float, you might fly. That luscious piece of prose was Northern Rivers, A Gothic Tale, by Moya Costello and is published by Spineless Wonders in Out of Place. Our next story is by poet, playwright and fiction writer Vivian Plum, who is of both New Zealand and Australian heritage. 
The Blouse is set up north in the rainforests of the Byron hinterland, where a young woman hitches a ride into a bizarre community. The plant man was showing his new orchid to me. It had a tiny face on it. He told me he got it at the new piano commune. He said, that's the place this dude called Joseph has started. And he has lots of rules, but if you stay, he'll give you free piano lessons because he's got this dirty big piano there. He's looking for new members. It's all the way down the end of Snake Creek Road. He told me all this because he knew I was looking for a place to stay. In a week or so, the bus I was living in would be gone because it was Bruno's bus and he was driving it up to Cape York where he shot crocodiles every year. The plant man lived in a little hut with a tarp roof. He was called that because he knew about plants. He could tell you all kinds of things. It was a hobby of his, and because of this hobby, he got around the district more than some of the rest of us. He was in demand to identify specimens, plus he went plant collecting, plus he had a car. Those of us without wheels went by our own two legs or hitched. Are you driving out that way again? I asked. No, he said. I don't go out there too often, too much farmland. The plant man was cataloguing rainforest plants only. He stopped talking about the piano commune and went on to one of his favourite topics, staghorn ferns. More people than you can imagine collect them. Even the local railway station master had made a feature display on the railway platform. They were the plant man's best subject, and once he started, there was no getting him off. My curiosity had got the better of me. It was hot when I set out for the piano commune. I hitched out of town as far as the turn-off with the local real estate agent, Sherry Withers. The entire way, she did nothing but talk about herself, her boyfriend, assistant manager at the local hardware shop, and her job. On and on about her job. I don't have much money, so I hitch everywhere. I hitch to work at the Presbyterian children's camp where I make the beds and wash the dishes and mop the floors. That's one half day, three times a week. With my first pay packet, I bought a big old hurricane lamp. Those narrow paths through the rainforest can be treacherous at night, especially during the wet. Plant man slipped on his path last year and ended up miles below. I sew clothes, write letters. Bruno makes a living by selling crocodile skins. I was sharing the bus with him, cooking and cleaning, and now he's going off to shoot roos and crocs. That's why I was thinking about the piano commune. It might be all right for a couple of months, and then I could move on. All this time, I was walking along and thinking that I might even die on Snake Creek Road if no one came and gave me a lift. And then this battered old minivan trumbled up. It had trees painted on the side and on the bonnet and a skinny-looking dude in the driver's seat and lo and behold, he's actually going to the piano commune. Turns out he lives there. I asked him what it was like and he went a bit evasive. He said I'd have to talk to Joseph. I gathered he was the big banana. The skinny dude's name was Ashwa. Joseph renamed him and now he was Ashwa. I idly wondered what Joseph might call me if I joined. Ashwa really liked the piano commune. He asked me how old I was and I told him. He looked happy, informing me that Joseph was mainly interested in healthy young women to join their group. 
I asked him what he did before. He was a metal welder called Scott. He worked on construction sites and stuff like that. He thought it was bloody paradise up here. He was crazy about the place. He looked at me and I could feel him licking his lips. Turned out Joseph's going to help him find a wife. He kept staring at me. I was wearing my thin voile blouse with shorts. The blouse has embroidery along the hem that I did myself. This is all part of the beliefs that I have about clothes. Once you get them, I think you need to mark them as your own. Some embroidery or change the buttons, rip a bit off. Like if the sleeves are too long or whatever, just rearrange the structure of the piece. Up here, we're proud of our freakiness, our difference. We wear it like a banner. We like to fly it. Ashwa still reeked of the nine to five, even if he'd been given a new name. He told me he was giving up the smokes. Joseph won't allow it on the commune. And no drinking alcohol either. I was beginning to get the message. The piano commune wasn't quite party central. Okay, so we arrived and it was too late for me to turn back, so onwards into the fray I went. Ashwa had been doing a spot of shopping in the town. He had about ten tonnes of raw oats in the back and various tools and all his welding equipment. I helped carry the oats. As we got to the main door, a wiry guy moved towards us quickly. He was really looking at me. He touched me on the arm and shook my hand. He steered me away from Ashwa. He told Ashwa what to do, and then he took me to show me their vegetable garden. I could hear a baby. A woman was watching us from the shed. I could feel her eyes drilling into me. This guy was the famous Joseph. He was short, an older type of person. He wore spectacles, little wire rim ones, a beard. He listened and you felt he was really focusing on your story. He was a bit intense, maybe a control freak. He had a slight accent, maybe German. He showed me where they grew everything. It looked amazing. Food was hanging everywhere. There was a complex watering system that had been set up in some kind of a greenhouse. It was really impressive. We have achieved a lot, said Joseph. He smiled at me and touched me again. Why don't you stay for dinner, Jussie? Would you like to see the piano? Yes. It was housed in a sweet little place of its own. Joseph had the key. I took note of that. Keys are not one of the things I believe in. What's mine is yours. It's there for all of us. We all own it together. Why is the piano locked up? I asked. He sat me down inside. It was all wooden walls, wooden floorboards, with this big black piano. I could smell incense. There were two big comfy armchairs. We sat in these. Joseph held both my hands. He was going to say something very important. We have rules here, he said. This is because I founded the commune for a reason. We're here to do God's will. We're here to teach, to learn, to grow, to procreate. He squeezed my hands. I wanted to remove them. He sat down and began to play. I closed my eyes and let the music wash over me. Soon I fell asleep and when I woke, I thought I'd only been asleep for ten minutes or so. The piano lid had been closed. Where was everyone? I got up, stretched and went outside. I still had my white calico bag slung across my chest. 
It contains my toothbrush and toothpaste and my empty purse. I didn't own any keys, money cards, checkbooks, bank books, passport, driver's license or any other form of identification. I prefer to spurn those things. The government keeps every piece of information they can lay their hands on. It lies there in the belly of their databases like undigested pieces of food. Eventually, they gather all this information and sell it to the highest bidder, or they transfer it to another government department, social welfare, taxation, migration. As much as possible, I try to keep my personal information to myself. I resist becoming a number and a line of statistics within the grid. Outside the piano room, it was becoming dark, and I realised I'd slept for several hours. A child was playing with a crooked stick in the dirt. He took me inside, carefully leaning his stick against the outside wall of the big shed. It was still hot in the shed, with every light blazing, and there were all these people, about seven women and a stack of children and babies. Ashwa was setting the table. Joseph was reading a newspaper. There were two other men, a young one with fair, curly hair and an older dude with big, hairy eyebrows and a bushy beard. They were Marcus and Pashin. Marcus was new and he hadn't been given a name yet. I couldn't keep track of the women's names. They seemed to be everywhere, slicing bread, serving food, with their eyes on me. It was intense. Dinner was a salad of homegrown avocado, tomato, lettuce and capsicum. Joseph explained some more rules to me. He thought that generally no one chewed their food enough to make digestion easier for the body, so all commune members were required to masticate 30 times or more on each mouthful of food. They were only allowed to drink before the meal, not after. Women served food to the men first, then the male children, then the female children, and served themselves last. After he had told me these rules, we commenced eating. Around the long table, about 14 pairs of jaws were going up and down and up and down, pulverising one lettuce leaf. I felt as if I'd stumbled into the feast of the giant grasshoppers. Then Joseph turned to me and began to outline the poo chart. This was a big colourful chart on the wall where everyone wrote stuff down about their bowel movements. I had to get my head around this. Joseph was so enthusiastic about the poo chart that he took me over right then and there in the middle of the meal and started showing me. I nodded and attempted to appear serious. I looked at the chart and read, Rachel, Tuesday, very soft in the morning, in the evening, firm and dark. By studying our chart, we can decide what food works well at cleansing our insides, which is good for energy and what just bulks us up, said Joseph. He loved this chart and laughed as he showed me everything on it. Don't worry, Joseph said to me. I'll make sure you understand everything about us. And after dinner, I have something special to tell you. I swallowed hard. What do you believe in? He asked me. I believe that raw food is good for you. He and Joseph smiled. I decided to go a little further. I don't believe it's right the way the government keeps information on us like we're little petri dishes and they're going to add anything they want into the equation. My entire personal history coded onto some database, my birth registry files, my dental information, my complete identity transformed into nothing but numbers in a government statistical operation 
that requires me to relinquish my own natural differences and my particular genetic traits and habits, my own ownness, the exemplary thing that makes me, me, being obliterated, being wiped, being made into some weird template that identifies me just as type C who does type B. I believe in objecting to that. I put down my fork, which I had been waving around. These things aren't important here on our commune, said Pashin of the eyebrows, as we do not register our children's births. Really? No. We are not attracted to that old system either. We wish to make something new here. Are you interested? Wow. I was all for it. I told him I was up for it if it involved anarchy against the state code. Bashin looked pleased and his eyebrows wiggled up and down furiously. When I finished my piece of wholemeal home-baked bread, I surreptitiously took a look around the table. All the men seemed happy, but the women looked bored, tired, furtive. Let us go somewhere private, suggested Joseph. We will go and sit in the vehicle. Okay. We walked past several bushes of hibiscus. Joseph steered my arm and invited me to climb into the tree-painted van. I shifted in my seat. In the distance, a door slammed. I wound the window down. Something was rustling in the hibiscus. The moon was the shape of a nail clipping, so thin, so lonely, so stark. Joseph slid closer. And now I must talk with you about something quite serious. I can tell you have lived in the city. You know how it is there. The pace, the way people perform their daily acts of life with no reverence, no love. They make themselves feel better by accumulating material possessions, electrical goods, whiteware, computers, cars, property. You have told us tonight that you no longer believe in a life like this. You appear to be considering entering our little commune. Would I be right in assuming this? Yes, I said, but in a low, crumbly voice. I said it like that. How did you get here? He asked. I hitchhiked, I said. I always do. Where do you live at present? He asked me. I'm staying on Mark Wenderby's land. I understand. Everyone in the district knew who Mark Wenderby was. A dropout rich kid who sank a lot of money into rainforest blocks from here to the Daintree. Nobody had even wanted that land before. I have heard about the behaviour on these pieces of land. Joseph went very serious. No drugs are to be taken on this commune. I said I understood. What about the other behaviour? What? The free sex. What was he on about? I have heard about the free sex. One woman with many men, for instance. Casual sex with many partners or even two women together. Crikey, my mouth was glued. What would he say next? And the orgasms. Lots of them. God. Women having more than one orgasm a night. Coupling with several partners. Joseph did his most serious look of all. And even two women together servicing each other to orgasm. I made a squeaking sound like I was clearing my throat, but I, like I was kind of making a comment at the same time. I have to speak to you about this because of our ultimate rule on this commune. He held my hand. With my other hand, I hung on to the strap of my shoulder bag. I could feel my throat contracting. I tried to swallow, but it was dry. I wished I had some water. 
I couldn't hear anything except my own breath coming out of my strangulated throat. Here, it is no orgasm. No orgasm for the woman. I coughed. I was sure there would be an explanation in a minute. No orgasm for the woman as one ordinary orgasm uses up an entire day's worth of energy and the woman needs this energy to help look after the children and the other important things they have to do here. How can you have sex but prevent the orgasm? I asked him. He looked at me intently and then he dropped my hand. You have had an orgasm? I nodded. But you are so young. You look so innocent. You want to know something? It is this blouse you are wearing. He put his hand on the blouse. I thought I knew what he was really on about. I never wore any underwear under my clothes. This blouse is very provocative, said Joseph. Why do you wear it? I believe that breasts are beautiful. Bodies are beautiful. So do I, said Joseph. He laughed. His hands ran down the voile and he whispered, If you join the commune, Jussie, I will look after you personally and teach you everything. I inched away and his hands fell off me. What about the men when they have sex? I asked. Yes, the men are allowed to orgasm. Of course, they need to do this. The women do not. This is our most important rule. I laughed. He asked me, why are you laughing? Because you're funny. I do not think I said anything that was meant to be amusing. The moon had risen higher. It was so thin and fragile, but unusually bright. I told him, I have to go back to town now because I have a job. I work for the Presbyterian Church and I have to be there at the church in the morning. The second half was a lie, but I didn't care. Would you like me to drive you back? Sure. He had the keys in his pocket. We drove through the dark, velvet oblivion. He wanted to talk about hitchhiking. This hitching is only another way of stating you are available. It is only for vagrants who have no money. You make yourself like a leech on the back of those who give you the lift. They know you have no money, but they will demand payment in other ways, claimed Joseph. I'm taking the lift that you offered me, I said. But I have your innocence and safety at heart, he told me. I could tell him that I'd had plenty of rides like that. It's more than that, I said. It's much bigger. You don't understand. When you hitch, you put yourself in another kind of space. He asked me if I would come and join the piano commune. I said I needed time to think. I instructed him to drop me on the crest of the hill. That was far away from where I actually lived. He wouldn't know that there was a shortcut that went over to the other side, where Mark had more land. I knew the way without any light. It would have been nice to have the hurricane lamp, but I could do without. The minute he dropped me, I was off the road and into the rainforest, where I knew I could never be followed. The giant trees surrounded me on every side. A pursuer would have to have an intimate knowledge of the narrow tracks that had been cut into the side of the hill and an ability to see in the dark. It was good to be out of the dry, eucalypt flatness of the piano commune. I knew I wasn't going to live at the piano commune. I believe that men who run their greedy hands over a woman's wild blouse want more than voile. I believe that the hands are an extension of the soul. I took off my blouse and threw it down into the forest below. I wasn't worried about having a blouse. I walked bare-breasted and I felt good like that.
The cool, dank rainforest closed in on me and I felt oh so good, so good. That was Eleni Schumacher performing Vivian Plum's The Blouse. You'll find it in Vivian's collection, Glove Box and Other Stories, which is published by Spineless Wonders. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening, and do drop us a line with any feedback about our show via the 2RPH website or Facebook page. Today's episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher Bronwyn Meehan, and our sound engineer was Chester Chu. I'm Ella Watson-Russell. Do join me again for Little Fictions On Air.